The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast 2021 Player Reviews. I'm Josh Nelson. In the upcoming months, we'll be selecting a player or position group to recap their 2021 season discussing if said player or players met or exceeded expectations and what does their near future outlook appear to be with the 2022 Chicago White Sox. Aloy Jimenez seemed destined for big things in 2021. After hitting 31 homers in his rookie season, Jimenez followed that up with a terrific sophomore season in 2020. During the 60-game season, Jimenez played in 55 games, hitting 296 with a 332 on base percentage, slugging 559 with a 139 OPS plus, smashing 14 homers and driving in 41 RBIs. Those numbers over a 162 game season pace would have put Jimenez at 38 homers and a four war season. What would Jimenez do for an encore in 2021? Was 40 homers possible? How about setting a new franchise record of 50-plus homers? It appeared the sky was the limit for Jimenez offensively. What's held Jimenez back with his overall play has been his defense. Whether that's missing fly balls or getting caught in the net or running into the wall, it's a bad idea at times for Jimenez to play left field. For the White Sox sake of keeping runs off the scoreboard and even Jimenez's sake staying on the field. On the last week of spring training in another meaningless game leading up to opening day, Jimenez hurt himself again defensively. On a fly ball that was well 20 plus feet past the wall, Jimenez still decided to show some effort by attempting to rob such a fly ball by extending his right arm over the wall. As he came down from his hop, Jimenez's arm went over the wall and his body weight went towards the ground in the warning track, pulling on that arm, 
And as his arm came back over the wall, it was well apparent that Jimenez was in pain as he grabbed his shoulder. At first, it was thought he may have dislocated his shoulder, but after an MRI, the news was worse. A torn left pectoral tendon was the diagnosis, and the timetable for his return was five to six months. A promising hitter, poised for even a bigger breakout in 2021, was going to miss more than half the season, if lucky. If not, maybe all of 2021. Yuri Mercedes and Andrew Vaughn attempted to fill in to replace the missing offensive production from Jimenez's absence. Mercedes had a memorable April, but fell back to earth and eventually was demoted. While Vaughn was learning how to play left field every day on the fly and not drowning in and at times looked pretty decent out there, there were some lean weeks that the rookie was simply outclassed at the plate. Even though the White Sox were in first place without Jimenez, they really needed their slugger back if they were going to go deep into the postseason. Good news came in June when Jimenez was cleared for baseball activity as he rehabbed and played in a few minor league games and trying to get his timing back. Jimenez finally returned to the White Sox on July 26th at Kansas City. His first game back wasn't great at the plate as he went 0-4 with the strikeout, but it was wonderful to see the smiling Jimenez back in a White Sox uniform. He would make his impact known the next night. The White Sox were down 3-1 in the 8th inning. Lurie Garcia started the rally with a leadoff double, and Adam Engel reached as he got hit by a pitch. After a wild pitch, both were standing in scoring position. Garcia would score on Yohan Mikata's ground out, and with two outs in the tying run on third base, Royals manager Mike Matheny went to the bullpen for Kyle Zimmer to face Jose Abreu. However, Zimmer didn't pitch to Abreu. He intentionally walked him to face Jimenez. An interesting decision, but Jimenez still had some rust buildup from all the time he missed, and Mike Matheny figured, why not test the young slugger? Jimenez made Matheny and Zimmer pay by launching a three-run homer, his first of 2021, and that dramatic shot helped the White Sox come from behind to win 5-3. That swing seemed to get Jimenez back into rhythm. In back-to-back games on August 8th and 9th against the Cubs and the Twins, Jimenez hit four home runs and drove in 10 RBIs. Jimenez hit a three-run shot to give the White Sox a lead in the Field of Dreams game against the New York Yankees later that week. The White Sox had their slugger back, and on August 15th, Jimenez was hitting 333 with a 350 on base percentage and slugging 719. In his first 15 games back, Jimenez hit six home runs. In his next 40 games, Jimenez hit just four home runs. Long droughts at the plate saw a slash line crater towards the season's end. There were concerns as the White Sox were wrapping up their first division title since 2008 about Jimenez's bat. I mean, there's always concerns about his glove in left field, but if Jimenez can't pick up the slack offensively, the White Sox were going to be in trouble keeping up with the Houston Astros. Jimenez finished the regular season hitting just 249 with a 303 on base percentage and slugged 437, in large thanks to a September slash line that was dismal at a 213 batting average, a 288 on base percentage, and slugging 319. 
after missing most of the 2020 American League wildcard round due to a knee injury, which Jimenez only had two plate appearances and he hit a double in one of those two plate appearances. Jimenez health-wise was fine against Houston. There just wasn't any power that the White Sox were hoping for as Jimenez went 5-for-17 in the series with all five hits being singles. He did drive in three RBIs, but the lack of extra base hits were a concern for the White Sox in the American League Division Series, and Jimenez shoulders some of the blame. Jimenez has a very bright future and has demonstrated on multiple occasions in his three seasons with the White Sox that he's a hitter to fear. The hope going into 2022 is that Jimenez will regain his 2024 with a normal offseason and a spring training that doesn't have him hurting himself defensively. With his power bat, the sky is really the limit on Jimenez's future production. But the White Sox have a redundancy of sorts when it comes to power bats who are best suited for left field or DH, and they have other needs on the roster. Going back in history, before the 2005 season, then-general manager Kenny Williams needed more speed in his lineup and a proven leadoff hitter. His lineup was already stacked with plenty of power, so he decided to make a move trading Carlos Lee, a proven 30-homer, 100-RBI, 300-hitter who played suspect defense in left field for speedster Scott Besednik with the Milwaukee Brewers. White Sox fans know very well how that 2005 season turned out for the White Sox and Pesednik. Lee was an all-star for the Brewers, hitting 32 homers and 114 RBIs. Milwaukee finished the year 81-81, and their first 500 record or better season since 1992 in large part thanks to Lee. Both teams benefited from that trade. Could Aloy Jimenez be the present-day Carlos Lee for the White Sox? And instead of helping them win a world championship with his bat, he's traded for a piece that completes the roster. We discuss that after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. 
Continuing the conversation about Aloy Jimenez is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. Jimenez played 55 games in 2020 and had a great season during COVID. Jimenez played 55 games in 2021, almost had identical plate appearances and at-bats, and was a league average hitter. Big difference, of course, was his major injury. How much of Aloy's torn pectoral muscle injury possibly impacted his 2021 results? I imagine quite a bit. It's it's hard to say only because, you know, uh, when it comes to Jimenez's production, he basically front-loaded his season, like through, I would say, mid-August uh, into the last week of August or so. He was hitting above uh, 300. He had some clusters of home runs, back-to-back games with uh, two homers and five RBIs, and um, was punishing pitchers who were trying to face him, who were trying to uh, pitch around Jose Abreu, thinking that Jimenez's timing would be off with the you know uh, surgery that took him out for the first uh, four months of the season, basically. So you know, he was getting picked on, and he was responding very well to being picked on, and uh, it looked like he had more or less picked off or picked up where he left off. Um, and then September rolled around, and he just kind of cratered on him. So you would think, you know, typically speaking, that if he were to struggle coming back from the injury, that you'd see that right away, or you'd see that more consistently. You might have some good weeks and bad weeks, but you wouldn't necessarily think you'd have a good Jimenez-looking month in August, followed by um, pretty, you know, I would say disappointing, but also you know, disappointing and, and, and flat. Like there weren't really any surges from Jimenez in September. He had some hits here and there, but the extra base hits were scattered and, 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 and kind of sparse. So he didn't really punish the ball in September the way he did in August. So, you know, when you look at that, you think, well, maybe he just got pitched too differently, or maybe the, uh, you know, the, the injury, you know, perhaps with the just having August and then September, maybe the workload caught up to him having the uh, cutoff spring training and irregular run to the season caught up to him. It's hard to say. All I can say is probably that it didn't help. <laughs> and, uh, you know, perhaps his August as sensational as it was, maybe set the bar a bit too high given the significance of the surgery he had. Looking at the red flags for Jimenez in 2021, his exit velocity, his average exit velocity was down two miles per hour from 2020. His hard hit rate, which is an exit velocity of 95 miles per hour or greater, went down by 10% from 2020. Uh, That's a significant drop-off. And Jimenez had a terrible time, Jim, against change-ups and curveballs. Looking at those specific pitches on the season for Jimenez, he had one base hit. One base hit against a changeup. He saw 89 changeups, and he was one for 17 in those plate appearances, ending in a changeup. And that one hit was a single, and he had one hit against the curveball, seeing 65 curveballs in 2021. Uh, and that one hit out of 12 at bats was a double. And if you threw a cutter against him, he was 0 for 15. <laughs> but the pitches that he did very well against, uh, sinkers or two seamers, uh, he was 18 for 41. That's a 439 batting average, and he slugged 707. Uh, so that's great. He was the opposite of Jose Abreu. When we did Abreu's review podcast, we mentioned that two seamers gave Abreu a terrible time 
That was not the case for Jimenez. Jimenez was pretty good against four seamers. He had 267, slugged 500 against that pitch. And the slider, he he got better. He he was better against the slider than he was in 2020, where he hit 246 in 2021 compared to 226. But the changeup curveball combination, giving Jimenez fits, is this something we're gonna have to pay attention to during spring training and maybe the start of 2022, Jim with Jimenez? Is that it's the off-speed stuff now that's giving him fits? I would say maybe, you know, the start of the season, just because when it comes to the desert, the Arizona environment in February and March, that breaking balls don't really do well. So I think when it comes to like the slow curveball stuff that uh, pitchers might f- give him later on the season, I don't think you'd see that so much in February spring training. I think if you saw it, it might not be that good. So I think you'd have to wait and see when it comes to the early season just to get an idea of um, you know, how pitchers are attacking him. The thing that's funny though about Jimenez is that when you look at the pitch frequency, he actually saw more, more fastballs in September than he did in August. And, and mm-hmm. it, to me that says like that pitchers weren't necessarily thinking that he was toast against breaking stuff or slow stuff the way that we saw Gavin Cheats the first time that he came up. Uh, his first stint that they were just more or less rocking him to sleep with curveballs, change up slow stuff low in the zone. He couldn't, uh, couldn't really get it elevated. He couldn't, uh, you know, they get him to two strikes pretty easily. He got defensive against the fastball. I think maybe like a lesser version of that phenomenon happened to Jimenez in that the fastballs he saw in September, like the, the exit velocity was up or, or fine, um, but he wasn't necessarily scoring them up. He wasn't getting them up in the air to the left side. He wasn't doing that neat little flip that he does to uh, you know outside pitches out to right field like that. That home run well dried up for him that month. So to me, just watching the way he he battled it, it, it to me, it seemed like he was more or less trying to find his timing and that maybe. Some games more than others, he looked vulnerable against one pitch. Other times, he looked more vulnerable against other pitches, kind of getting caught in between, adjusting for fastballs, and then being susceptible to slower stuff and vice versa. What jumped out to me is that when you look at the uh, ground ball rate, the, the ground ball rate actually went down year over year from uh, above 50% to below 50%, like 51 to 48. Still too high for a hitter with his power, but moving in the right direction. But when you look at the the launch angles based on the lower third in the zone, he just wasn't able to get under pitches. I mean, you'll see a lot of ground balls come from that area, but year over year, it, it plummeted in terms of just being able to get the ball off the ground. So to me, it seemed like he wasn't necessarily vulnerable or pitchers didn't see like a huge weakness, but maybe his timing was just off to where when he saw those pitches, he just couldn't get around in them or couldn't get the bat where he needed to uh to meet the ball where it needed to be to do damage so i guess that's some bad news and some good news in that you know the way pitchers attacked him it wasn't like you know andrew vaughn going uh you know against righties how he saw more breaking balls month to month or like you mean mercedes because he could turn around fastballs saw more fastballs uh month to month like it, the Pitch mix is counterintuitive, and to me that seems like maybe he wasn't necessarily weak or flawed as a hitter, but maybe just weak or flawed in timing or approach, or perhaps just maybe just not 100% to where 
he couldn't get his parts lined up to meet the ball where it needed to be met. And that brings the conversation back to that torn peck that he was healthy enough to return and he still hit 10 home runs with the White Sox in 55 games. It's just a 100 OPS plus is not what you are expecting or needing from Aloy Jimenez. And he was mostly not a big factor at all during the American League Division Series against the Houston Astros. The expectation for Jimenez moving forward is that he is the middle-of-the-order power bat that is ready to take over for Jose Abreu whenever Abreu leaves and is consistently producing 35, maybe 40 home runs in a season and driving in 100-plus RBIs. That That is the expectation for Aloy moving forward. And the numbers that his batted ball data in 2021 suggests something was off, and obviously it was. He only played 55 games in a 162-game season because of that significant injury. But as you mentioned, Jim, he looked like, hey, this is the Aloy from 2020 in the month of August. In September, that went away. Uh, and something else that was remarkable, his ground ball rate actually decreased in 2021 compared to 2020. As everybody knows, I am an advocate of putting the ball in the air. And Aloy had a almost 52% ground ball rate in 2020, which is way too high for a hitter like him. Uh, he was about 48% in 2021. Aloy has some crazy home run to fly ball rates, Jim. Like, I, I forgot in 2020, 31% of his fly balls resulted in a home run. <laughs> That's almost one out of three fly balls is leaving the ballpark, where mm -hmm. that dropped by 10% in 2021 to 21%. So about one out of every five fly balls Aloy Jimenez hits, they go they go out for home runs, which again is why I say for Aloy, he's got to figure out how to hit the ball in the air because of his power. Uh, he can really take advantage, especially hitting that guarantee Ray Field. And I know we talked about this during the season, but he was really more pull heavy than he was in 2020 where in 2020 he was pretty balanced as far as hitting it, the pool side to center field and opposite field. And we've advocated this too for Aloy because he's so strong that especially hitting at home, he should be maybe thinking right center field because if he's a little bit behind, he can still go out, uh, do oppo taco against opposing pitcher. And we saw those numbers decline. So maybe in 2022 for Aloy, what he really needs is just a fresh start and, and not hurt himself during spring training uh, to get back on track and maybe wash away the 2021 season. But when we're looking at the 2022 Zips projections, thanks to our friend Dan Zaborski at Fangraphs, Zips is projecting a 276 batting average, a 319 on base percentage, a 510 slugging percentage for Aloy. The OPS plus climbs back up to 122, so Aloy is projected to be 22% better than league average, but only 26 home runs and 80 RBIs. And what we saw from 2021, is there any concern, Jim, that Aloy may not reach his full potential of being the monster hitter that we thought he could be? There is just because of the injuries, just year, yeah, I would say year after year, there's been you know, at least one significant injury that kind of takes him out of the key time. And, you know, as we've talked about when it comes to his outfield play, he's not the most graceful of players. He does put himself in 
situations where he might get hurt. Uh, so that's a case where, you know, if you're talking about like the biggest indicator of future injuries is past injuries, he's starting to accumulate them at a pace that's worrisome. So that's why I, I think that, you know, we've talked about, you know, or I've talked about maybe trading him to, to an extent that makes you uncomfortable, <laughs> but just because I, I think he's at that point to where he does need to have one of those big seasons, like a season that he had like in 2020 would be fine, but over 162 games rather than 60. You know, as you said, he, he posted 55 games each of the last two seasons, but 55 meant vastly different things uh, based on the year we're talking about. And either way, um, he needs one of those years to have 150 games or at least 140 uh, of that kind of silver slugger production, I think in order to, be what White Sox fans and, and even the White Sox themselves thought because, you know, he was never going to be somebody who provided well-rounded protection with defense and base running. He was there to hit and he's there to hit now and he's shown flashes, but um, it, it seems like he's trying to put the finishing touches on that approach to where he does get the ball in the air a bit more to where he does, he, he does take advantage of that immense opposite field power he has to where he doesn't have to go hunting and lurching and pulling the ball in the air. Uh, like, you know, the, the kind of hitter I'm thinking about is like Jose Bautista and how long it took him to tap into his production. But unlike Jimenez, he really wasn't a, a notable prospect. And it wasn't until he, you know, was able to you know, be one of the uh, forefathers of the launch angle revolution, you know, getting the ball in the air to the left side, not trying to hit the ball over the place, just tapping into that now, power stepping in the bucket basically and launching the left. Jimenez can do that, but he doesn't have to. Like he he has that that well-rounded hitting ability that uh, Bautista didn't have at the start of his career. He has that easy power to right field, so he doesn't have to be that guy. But it seems like if he can at least get back to where he was in 2020, even if it isn't quite, even if you think like there's more to it, there's a there's a guy who could theoretically lead the team or even lead the league in home runs, and he's not coming close. As long as I think he gets back to that 2020 season, he'll be better off. He'll be everybody will be in a much happier place because uh, that guy is is good enough, and that guy the White Sox don't really have in the outfield right now. Looking at his baseball savant page and his batted ball profile, they do the similar batters to Aloy Jimenez for comps. His number one comp, 2019, Avisil Garcia. Yeah. And it, it it makes me worry a little bit. I mean, 2019 Avi was a good hitter for the Milwaukee Brewers, but I I I I have to think that Aloy Jimenez is going to be better than the 2019 version of Avisil Garcia. Well, and that was that was actually when he was with the Rays and only playing. Yeah, and he was only playing 125 games. Like basically, he was in a platoon or situation where the Rays were starting him when it was conducive to start him. So that was, I think, a case where it wasn't every day Avi Garcia uh, hitting the ball into the ground the way uh, he did with the White Sox when he was starting every day. I think that was a case where it was a little bit uh, better and it, it was the kind of form he needed to show. That was the first time he hit 20 homers and he did it, um, you know, in, in only 125 games. So that guy isn't bad. That guy helps a team. Um, but yeah, it isn't the kind of uh, wrecking ball that we thought Jimenez would be. Yeah, it's and again, it's the final results against expectations. Am I wrong in my expectation of Aloy Jimenez, Jim, with the White Sox that 
He's got to be a guy that hits 35 homers and drives in 100-plus RBIs if the White Sox are going to be a championship contender in 2022. Yeah, I think more or less. like a, He's somebody who's talented enough as a hitter to where if he hits, say, 30 homers, he still might have the extra base hits elsewhere, the singles elsewhere, to make up for it. Like I, I think he's not somebody who sells out for homers the way that Jose Abreu doesn't sell out for homers. Like he, you know, Abreu has different swings for different situations and different pitches. And and so he gets to hundred RBIs in a variety of ways with a variety of home run counts. And I think Jimenez is a little bit cut from the same cloth, except, you know, younger, um, you know, in his prime, he's got the, uh, I think he's got the raw power, the, the home run distance that Abreu doesn't have. So, you think there is more in there, but I think, you know, what we saw in 2019, 31 homers in 122 games, he's shown that. It was somewhat of a one-dimensional 31 homers, and I think the next year where he hit 296 and um, he, he closed uh, closed up the strikeout rate a little bit and, and wasn't as, I guess, home runner bust, or at least, you know, he, he was better in the outfield. He provided a little bit more value all over. That I think that that 2020 homer, uh, that 2020 guy with the 14 homers in 55 games, he was on a pace for like uh, roughly about four wins above replacement. And I think that's more or less what the White Sox would want to see from him this year, or, or at least, you know, kind of prorated depending on what kind of you know maintenance plan they put him on to make sure he gets there. Yeah, the 2020 version of Aloy Jimenez in a 162-game pace is hitting 38 homers. Yeah. So I, I agree. Like, I, I we saw it in 2020. He hit 31 homers his rookie season with the White Sox. I, I just feel like that's the expectation, is that Aloy Jimenez has to be a 30-home run guy because we know just how important home runs are, especially in today's game. Let's talk about defense. How much longer do you think Aloy Jimenez is going to be playing left field? I think it seems like when you look at the metrics that he did make some strides, his sample size was small enough to where you can't necessarily trust it. Only 37 games in left field. Um, that's not enough to where you know, usually you want at least one full season, hopefully two or three of data to understand like how good a guy has been in left field. But when you look at the uh, you know usual metrics, defensive run saved, UZR, you know, the, the outs above average, he fared better. And I, I'm hoping that the way Andrew Vaughn played left field kind of maybe lit a fire under him or at least um, helped the White Sox hone in on what he's doing wrong. Maybe coaching up Vaughn instructed maybe how they can you know get more out of Jimenez, whether it's out of positioning or out of just mindsets, you know, what balls to attack, what balls to round off, something like that. Because watching Vaughn go from, you know, career first baseman and DH – slow-footed to left field where he was more or less below average but fine like not a liability and then you saw Jimenez with better sprint speeds with way more experience in left field being a disaster his rookie season and a little bit less of one but still really uh, iffy in left field in the future looking pretty bleak you know for the long-term sustainability it it seemed like he was able to uh, improve a little bit in left field. I don't remember the the kind of disasters that that piled up on him. <laughs> the kind of the uh, that 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 uh, 
thread of tweets that I have with the screenshots of him in very awkward positions. Uh, you don't see uh, other outfielders with the ball behind him and him looking at home plates with his hands up or tumbled over a screen or using uh, using the screen like a hammock. Like he's, he didn't end up in those positions, which you know is faint praise, but necessary praise given the uh, the baseline he's working with here. There was progress, but it's still not necessarily enough to keep him out of there if better options emerge. So he can play there. He can play there, I think, for one more year and, and, and show what a fuller sample size uh, brings um, because I, I think uh, one, one full season, one more 162-game game season might answer that definitively. <laughs> so I, I think that's kind of what I'm thinking is that there's no need to move him to DH now. But you should keep that in mind or keep the long-term picture for that position open because he hasn't claimed it yet. It has been mentioned on this show a few times, and you mentioned it earlier, that the White Sox do have redundancy on their roster. Looking at Aloy's contract, there's three years, $31.5 million guaranteed. There's two club options that can bump up his contract to five years, $65 million. I am sure if Aloy Jimenez was a free agent right now, he'd do better than five years and $65 million. So the White Sox have a pretty good deal on the table right now for Jimenez. However, let's entertain this thought. How tradable is Aloy Jimenez? And why would the White Sox move him? And why would it be crazy for them to move him? I think he's still pretty tradable because, you know, the, the 2020 season is right there. He has a distinct physical explanation for uh, the, the step back in 2021. Um, the, his ability to turn around a fastball is still there. So it's not like he was hampered in terms of bat speed. It's more of a timing thing. And I think like a lot of organizations uh, would love to get their hands on him to just see if they can, you know, get that last I don't know, 10% of his development that might turn him from a silver, you know, I guess a silver slugger, but not MVP threat, not like a, a home run uh, title threat into somebody who could maybe be the league's best hitter in a given year. Um, and when you look at his, his contract, he's uh, the, the guaranteed part is three years and 31.5 million. That's not a lot for somebody who, if he connects, like if he develops into that player, you know, has two more club options after that. There's a lot of, you know, that's a case where um, he's making a significant amount of money, but especially for a team that might be a couple years away, like might not be counted on producing or, or, or contending in 2022, but 2023 isn't a, isn't completely out of reach. Um, and 2024 is there like say like a team like the Royals, just, you know, I'm not saying trade them to the Royals, but just a team with that kind of forecast, maybe the Tigers too, to where maybe next year isn't the year, but the year after that, like he would be a case where that's a good guy to invest resources into because if he delivers on the potential he's always had, the potential he's sometimes shown, then you have him for two years after that. He's in the peak of that. Uh, he's in his own physical peak and he's also in the peak of that competitive cycle and he's somebody who can help extend a cycle and maybe help a team refresh it so that's why I think a team would want to deal him and that's of course why the White Sox might be loath to deal him themselves it's just more of a matter of you know they have they have a number of players who are awkward in the corner outfield and uh, probably are better off playing first base or a DH in a team that's optimized and the, the, they do have 
uh, holes at second base and have holes in the outfield. And, and he would th- theoretically open one up, but maybe he wouldn't based on his defensive play. So if they wanted to diversify the roster, maybe get a left-handed bat, maybe get somebody who draws a few more walks, you know, has the same kind of enviable team control situation to where like they're not trading him for somebody who's only under contract for one or two more seasons, like just a challenge trade or a, a way for a team with too many like players to mix it up. Uh, that's the kind of trade I'm thinking of. And now that he's under contract for three years and 31.5 million, like this year I think is, you know, when you're looking at a salary and, and the kind of impact he has on a payroll, like this year is the last year he makes uh, nine figures. He's making 7 million and 333 1,333. Uh, if this year is a disappointment, so he has another injury and he only plays like half a season and it's not that great, then you're talking about um, you know 10 million and 13 million in the next two years. And that's when it gets a little bit iffier for a team to carry him. So that's why I think that you know this is an interesting time to think about dealing him. And if the White Sox did trade him, I'd be shocked, but I'd also be without reacting or saying, you know, no or why or you know, that's impossible. Like I'd say like, for who? Like I'd be intrigued um, just because I think it would be a high risk trade, but it also, there is some risk in keeping him. That's what makes it interesting to me. And I think uh, other teams uh, that are more transactional in nature or less attached to the players who are, um, you know, under contract and getting more expensive uh, might be open to making that deal, even if the White Sox aren't. So let me pitch you a team, Miami. They... Just signed Avisil Garcia, speaking of Avi, because they need bats. And they need bats in the outfield. And they need home run hitters. Mm-hmm. They have a surplus as far as in pitching that they are willing to move. The White Sox are really, really, really lacking in starting pitching depth. And uh, they also have someone that's intriguing at second base in uh, Jazz Chisholm. Do you think Miami would make sense as a possible trade partner for Aloy Jimenez and the White Sox? Uh, maybe. I think in terms of value, that might not be far off. But when it comes to just the, the the idea of trading him, I think you have to trade him for somebody who can produce this year as much as Jimenez might produce this year. With, with I'm, I'm looking at Chisholm's number right now. It's it's fine. Like it's good for a second baseman. Like he had an average season as a as a rookie or playing his first full year that's not bad and he can do some things uh in the base running department and he's got a little bit of pop and he you know he's his defense i think is is decent so he's well-rounded but i think if you're looking for everyday production i think it has to be somebody close to where you know it, that's i think the the thing i'm wrestling with with trading him is that you know you're losing that theoretical 35 home run power who is going to hit 35 homers if he's not there and that's the thing I think that stops me. You know, could Andrew Vaughn do it? Maybe, but I wouldn't count it this year. Could Jose Abreu do it? We've seen him do it, obviously, but he's also a year older, so you want to take some of the load off him. That's that's what I wrestle with. Like, is Yohan Moncada going to hit for power uh, like he did before? Or is he more of a well-rounded third baseman who does a lot of different things uh, well rather than somebody who can, you know, change the game with his bat alone? That's, that's what I'm wrestling with here with trading Jimenez, so... That's why I think he's an awkward guy to trade. But I think, you know, if the White Sox did deal him, they would probably be saying, like, we don't like where this is headed. 
you know, maybe it would be a case where like, you know, they saw the numbers in September, they saw the injury and thought like, well, this might be, you might be one more injury away from not offering anything. The way I kind of talked about with Nick Madrigal, the way like, you know, year after year and significant injury after significant injury, um, perhaps draining all the physical tools he needed to be a difference maker. That's that's what I'm thinking with Jimenez. Like this is the one year where like if if he had another like downer of a year, his trade value really takes a hit. So that's why I think it's interesting to talk about it and interesting to think about. It. I just think it would have to be like less of a trade for a need and less of and more of a trade for a real guy. And if they have to shift guys around to accommodate that real guy, so be it. But I, I just, I think I'm a little bit skittish about trading him for a need alone, if that makes sense. I'm just skittish about the thought of trading Aloy Jimenez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am too. <laughs> but, but I think you'd have to be more open-minded in trading somebody like him. You'd have to say, like, we're going to get, I mean, I'm trying to think of a, a guy off the top of my head who wouldn't fit what the White Sox currently do, like, say, uh, I'm blanking on, on prospects right now. Like say like uh, somebody who plays third base, like Yohan Makata is there and they trade for, do you have any third baseman? Like Detroit and Spencer Torkelson. Yeah. Okay. Like say, yeah, Spencer Torkelson, like say they have somebody similar, but just like he might be a different hitter, might be more polished and just might have more of a plate discipline. Uh, that's a case where, you know, maybe he's somebody who just changes the complexion of the lineup a little bit knocks down the payroll a little bit, allows the White Sox to maybe think about moving somebody to accommodate him, just shaking things up. That's, that's I think, what I'm getting at. But it'd have to be somebody who provides pretty near instant impact and can provide the same, you know, a similar kind of bat that Jimenez has. Maybe not like the earth-shattering bat that he has the potential to have, but, you know, most of that bat, you know, with maybe the, the physical grace that allows him to stay healthier. I am really in the camp of don't trade Aloy, but I, there's precedents, especially in this franchise. Like if you want to duplicate the Carlos Lee for Scott Pesednik trade, Aloy would be this present day version of Carlos Lee. Mm -hmm. And it worked out for the white Sox with Scott Pesednik in 2005, even though I think we would have destroyed that trade the way we talk about baseball today <laughs> and we would still be arguing about that trade throughout 2005. And then Pesednik comes up big in the postseason, of course, and obviously hits the walk-off homer in game two of the world series. And uh, that would have been really interesting if Twitter and Facebook were around and we talk about baseball then as we do today, that would have been really interesting uh, but yeah, I'm not in favor of trading Aloy Jimenez right now. I, I get the redundancy for the White Sox and I made it known the offseason plan project that out of the three, I'd be more willing to move Gavin Sheets than Andrew Vaughn and Aloy Jimenez. But you are right, Jim. It's not impossible. You can't say no to the idea completely because maybe a team calls and they just blow you away and... They look at Jimenez as this is the cheapest we're ever going to get a power hitter for five years, $65 million. And maybe the White Sox get a player that they currently do not have on their roster or they don't have in their farm system, which is not saying much these days. I just, I hate the idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess like I'm, I'm, yeah, it's like uh, I was looking for a third baseman and, and there really weren't like Austin Riley is the one third baseman who might be there you that, go. That, okay. that description. Uh, otherwise, third base is pretty... 
deep and established. But that's the kind of like player I'm thinking of. Like say like they get an Austin Riley and, and there, there's no reason for the Braves to trade him, but just uh, for an exercise. Like you know, right now, Yohan Makata plays third base and you don't want to move him. But you know, if Riley is just a little bit more certain in terms of defensive value and you can move somebody else to the outfield to make up for it. Like there are just ways to kind of juggle the lineup around and make it work. But yeah, it is a... It is a very there. There's a there's a I guess not a thin margin for error in trading Jimenez just because he has his own margin for error that's pretty slim when it comes to somebody who's ordinary versus somebody is who is extraordinary. You know, I think we've seen the last two seasons that he can uh, go from one mode to the other a little bit too easily and 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 be canceled out or 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 be more of an afterthought in the lineup. So that's that's more or less what I'm thinking about is just when you're trying to get out of this situation where you have a Brayu and Andrew Vaughn, Gavin Sheets and Ella Jimenez, like you don't necessarily want to trade Jimenez, who is probably the most talented player of those four, at least when it comes to hitting. But when it comes to just the idea of just you know, how do you get out of these payroll situation? You know, if the White Sox are saying that they're devoting too much of their you know, existing payroll to guys who are getting more expensive. How do you back out of that a little bit? Like that's, that's why I think like with the way the White Sox have described their situation, that's the one guy who thinks like, well, if they had the, if they saw the opportunity to trade him without taking a real step back, that might be the one way that they could perhaps, you know, open themselves up to a, you know, more athletic or, or more, uh, you know, better defensive situation with uh, not a huge offensive drop-off, but also the ability to maybe uh, drop that big money on a player who really fits a need. There's one trade idea that I would move Aloy Jimenez, and that is a some type of package to get Juan Soto from the Washington Nationals. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Jim. Yeah. That's what I would entertain. Right yeah, but I mean, like that's, I mean, you know, we kind of laugh about it, but just like that's, that's the kind of imagination I guess I'm thinking about is just, you know, there are ways to trade him and, and there are teams like, the, you know, say the Nationals who just want to maybe kick their window of competition. Like, you know, maybe they're, they're not hell bent on winning in 2022, but 2023, they want to turn it on, you know, through 25. That's a case where he might be able to help them in that way even with the money he's making whereas the White Sox in a win now mode uh, could maximize that with a a player like Soto or whoever you know that can win now and then just you know reshape the payroll a little bit uh, reshape the depth chart a little bit in order to uh, not have so much money tied up in corner players yeah because Soto is going to make 15 and a half million dollars in 2022 that is such an underpayment uh, but he's still in arbitration. He's got two more years of arbitration, and then he hits free agency at the age of 26 in 2025. And I cannot even fathom what that contract is going to be like for Juan Soto. But you would be trading five years of Aloy Jimenez plus maybe someone else for three seasons of Juan Soto. Mm-hmm. And the money might be close. So it really depends on who else the White Sox add to entice the Washington Nationals, a Nationals team that may not be all that competitive in 2022. And the White Sox get their right fielder for this championship window. There you go. I talked myself into the only trade scenario (laughs) that I would approve moving to Loy Jimenez. Yeah, but I mean, that's the kind of thing where, you know, Jimenez, it opens trade possibilities that really nobody else 
opens. Yeah, Andrew Vaughn doesn't move the needle in that. Yes. Yeah, Michael Kopech doesn't move the needle. No, it would be Jimenez. That's why I just like thinking about it, just because it does expand your imagination a bit. <sighs> I still hate it. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough needle to thread. And like you mentioned with the Pazetic thing, like the last thing you want to do is trade him for... Yeah, to fill holes at second base and right field or whatever, just to get the better defensive players or get somebody who, uh, you know, get a three win second baseman for somebody with Jimenez's offensive ceiling. Like that's the case where like the, the Podge trade happened once and it'll never happen again. (laughs) Just, just the, uh, sacrificing that much offense, but getting the exact amount of the shape of production you need. Yeah. That's for, for a player with Pazenic's like track record. And then also what happened after that was, that's lightning in a bottle. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you hopping on and recapping Aloy's 2021 season. And I am hoping, I am hoping we are talking about Aloy Jimenez during spring training, previewing the 2022 season. And I'm hoping that when we talk about him after the season, uh, we'll be making fun of me forever thinking about trading him. That will do it for this 2021 player review podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. For those that have been listening to the show all season, and if you haven't already signed up, think about doing so at our Patreon page. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive content, ad-free versions of the podcast and website, and the first opportunity to receive our new Sox Machine swag items. We have monthly plans starting at just $2 a month, and our annual plans save you 9%. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.